0: Amen. All right. So um, Brandy's out of town this weekend. She and her mom went on a trip that they've been planning for a while. And, you know, I thought, well, this is my moment. About three or four years ago, I had bought all of the Lord of the Rings extended editions. And I thought now is my time. The TV, as loud as I want. The kids are doing things in their room. So I've been watching, but what i had forgotten is just how long they are. <laughs> so I've been having to watch them in installments. Um, so I, I made it through the first one, three and a half hours. I made it about an hour into the second one, and I've really got time to make up before she gets back tomorrow. Um, so, but but it's, it's been in my head, and one of the things that I love so much about those movies is they're really all about Virtue they're about about bravery and they're about sacrifice and they're about commitment. And there's these beautiful, beautiful moments in there. And so I'm not going to be ashamed to say I've cried several times already. <laughs> a movie and a half in as these beautiful moments. And so it just kind of got into my head and I was thinking, Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings. And as I put together this study this week, I thought, oh, the Lord of all things. You know, there's a, there's a tie-in, because that's who the Lord is. And so if we settle that, just as if you were to watch or, or read Lord of the Rings, you, you know what to expect. You know what's going to go on. You know what the things it's going to be about. It's going to be about that bravery and courage and sacrifice and friendship and all. of You know that's what's going to happen. And so it is. If we would set our minds on the truth that the Lord God of the Bible is the Lord of all things, if we set that, then all of a sudden we find that the other things start to follow. So often what happens is, is human beings don't believe that God is Lord of all things. And, and so what they're left with, well, I've got to make it up along the way. I've got to see what's going on in culture, and I'm going to change these things. And so Christians, well, just people in general, but then Christians who are, haven't settled this issue in their hearts, they're just confused. They, they just don't know where to turn. They don't know what to go. They don't know what to think. And if we would just believe what the scriptures say... God's revelation of himself, that he is truly the Lord of all things, it'll settle so many issues for us. I'm not saying it's going to solve everything. I'm not saying that we would have no longer have mystery, but the big questions would be settled. We we, we could settle ourselves on that. So I would encourage all of us as we move through the scriptures today to remind ourselves of the truth that the Lord is the Lord of all things. And that's not dependent on how we feel about it. It's not dependent upon what politicians say or what pastors say. What I say about this issue has no bearing on what really is. What I'm seeking is to actually get in line with truth, to to tell you guys the truth that the Lord is the Lord of all things. And so as I was thinking about this subject, I wanted to take you to a couple of places, or actually just one place, it's close by. Would you hold on to Psalm 76, but then also turn to Psalm 50? Psalm 50, I love this. Okay, and, so, and so what God is doing here in Psalm 50, so we're going to pick up in verse 9. He's basically criticizing the nation of Israel because they're offering these offerings to him, but their heart's not in it. It's just routine. It's just ritual. And so this is what the Lord says here in Psalm 50, verse 9, through the mouth of Asaph who he's speaking through, he says this, I will not take a bull from your house. Now, it's pretty funny. Most of you don't have the NRS. I think it's the New Revised Standard Version, but it says, I will not take bull from your house, (laughs) which is kind of a funny way to, to phrase it if you think about it. But he says, I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats from your folds. In other words, God says, I don't want you giving me sacrifices if you're just going through the motions. And here's the reason why. He says, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the fields are mine. So this idea of these people of like, oh, I'm having to give something to God. God says, don't give it to me. It's already mine. It already belongs to me. And so if you can't offer it back to me with a right heart, I don't want it. Just keep it. And then I love what he says in verse 12. He says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. (laughs) For the world is mine and all its fullness. So this beautiful reminder that, you know, sometimes we think, well, I'm just sacrificing so much for the Lord. I'm giving so much to the Lord. It already belongs to him. And so he owns it all. And, And this should come as no surprise because the very first verse of the Bible Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, everything belongs to God. He made everything. We're told in Colossians that everything was made through Jesus and for Jesus, and by his power, his will, everything holds together. So the Lord is truly the Lord of all things. That settles issues. Because what happens as we turn back now to Psalm 76, if we'll get that in our hearts and minds to say, well, I belong to the Lord. And if I live or die, I'm the Lord's. And so it's not about what I feel, it's not about what I think, it's not about what I want, it's about the Lord. And I I promise you, and I promise myself, that if we would just trust that the Lord is the Lord of all things, everything's for Him, everything belongs to Him, everything's going back to Him, it'll settle so many issues. It, it, it will really clarify so much. So, so that's the, really the heart as we move into this. And, and hopefully it's the heart of every study that I teach, that the Lord is the Lord of all things. So let's move into Psalm 76 now. And this is a psalm of victory. And, and so it's a psalm of, of like, hey, God has conquered over his enemies. And, and so it's it's an exciting psalm. It's a psalm of, a, of cha- God, God's a champion. And I would encourage you to take some time on your own is, is to just kind of read back through the book of Revelation and look at all the songs of victory there. It's my privilege right now to, to teach a, a senior level class at school. It's an elective on the book of Revelation. It's just so fun, 16 seniors and to work through it with them. And, you know, it's, it's, we're up to chapter 11 now and on Wednesday and it's going to be about the two witnesses and exciting things. But, you know, one of the things that, that I'm noticing this time through the book of Revelation is how many songs of victory there just how many songs of praise to God and to the Lamb and what they've done. And so we want to celebrate that victory, and it's important for us to believe that because so often as Christians, we walk around defeated. Okay? We, we walk around and like, oh, I, just, I just don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how things are going to turn out. Well, we know that there's going to be a lot of bad stuff, but we know the ending. You know, as I, I, was, I was thinking this morning, I thought, well, I'm going to use this. It's a really, really, really absurd uh, analogy. But imagine God told me that in 2025, the Aggies were going to do the unthinkable and win the national championship. (laughs) What would happen is would I still be bummed out how they play every year? Absolutely. I would. But then I would know 2025 is coming. (laughs) I would know that they were winning that. Well, you know what? We've been given something much greater. As we know the end of the scriptures, we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That the moment we die, we're going to be with him. We know that the day is coming where Jesus is going to return and rule on planet Earth. We know the day is coming where there's a new heaven and a new earth, where there's no evil, where we're going to enjoy fellowship with him forever. Those are things that must be brought to the forefront of our minds. They must be our telos, our end goal. They must be those things that, that we filter everything else in life through. Because if we don't, if we think, well, I, I just don't know that the victory's assured. I just don't know that it's going to work this way. I don't, well, then that's a really an us problem. We're not trusting the Lord because the Lord has told us. The Lord has told us how it's going to be, and as we trust him in that, then what's going to happen is we're going to be able to celebrate those songs of victory with him. All right, let's move into verses 1 through 3 here of Psalm 76. It's another psalm of Asaph, and we're told, In Judah God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem, that's just a short version of Jerusalem, in Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield, and the sword of battle. Salaam. I just want to bring out three truths from these first three verses. Truth number one, God is known and knowable. God is known and knowable. There's a lot of people around in the world and say, well, I just just don't know if there's a God. I just don't know. And, And understand that that's where a lot of people may be. But for you as a Christian, you should not say that. As a Christian, you shouldn't say, well, I just don't. No, no, you've known God. God is known by you, believer, and he is knowable. Now, here's the thing. If you're here today and you do not yet know God, let me just tell you with certainty, you can get to know him. God is knowable. He's someone they could be introduced to. In fact, this is what Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 3, as he's praying to the Father the night before his crucifixion, what's often been referred to as his high priestly prayer. He said this, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what eternal life is, is knowing God the Father and knowing God the Son by God the Holy Spirit. That's eternal life. It's not about, you're the best prayer, you know, this side of Hudson Taylor. It's not about, I have read the Bible more times than George Mueller. It's not about any of those things. Eternal life is knowing God the Father and knowing God the Son by the Holy Spirit who drew you. That's, so So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, hey, people can know God. And that's an incredible privilege. You can know your creator. You can know your Savior. Don't be sucked in to all these people who don't know God and say, well, they don't know God. I must not know God. No. I've been married for almost 25 years now. I know what marriage is like. I've I've had four children. I know what being a dad is like. So I'm not going to ever allow someone who's never been married, who's never had kids to tell me what it's like. Well, you just can't know it. I can know it. Same thing for you. If you have known God, don't let anybody deceive you into saying you don't know God. It's really, really important. Now, the good news too, or the better even, I don't know how I can phrase this, but if you already know God, here's the thing, you can get to know him better. Every day you can get to know him better. And let me just tell you this, heaven is never gonna be a boring place because God is infinite, so you're never gonna know him completely. Though you live forever with God, you're always going to be getting to know Him better. You're always going to be growing in relationship with Him. So this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, with this in mind, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 3 for just a moment? See if I can slow my heart rate down a little bit. Ephesians chapter 3. I want to look at verses 14 through 19. Uh, Again, thinking about this idea of knowing God realizing that, that this is your purpose in life. your The primary purpose of life is knowing God. Because once you know God, all of these other wonderful things can come out of that. You can walk in what God's called you to. But Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19, if it's been a while since you read through Ephesians, I would encourage you to read back through it and just look at the incredible blessings you've been given as a believer. It's incredible. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14 Paul says this, for this reason, I bow my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And kind of the reasons that were before, and I don't have time to get into all that right now. He says, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit and the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love, here it is, may be able to comprehend right? That's a knowledge word, to be able to comprehend, to understand with all the saints, here it is, what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, and I love this phrase, which passes knowledge, (laughs) to know that which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's incredible, you could, you know, try to to dive into these verses every day for the rest of your lives and not come to the end of them, but what we see Paul saying is Paul's desire for these believers there in Ephesus, his desire for you as a born-again believer, is that you would get to know God's love for you, that you would get to know God himself, that you would get to know that which love which passes understanding because God is love, and so as we know his love, we'll get to know him better. But I love that phrase, the width and the length and the depth and the height of that. Now, now here's the thing. You may be in a place today where you haven't been spending much time with the Lord. And so this sounds like, well, Steve's getting excited about something and that's great for him, but I'm not right there. Here's how it has to happen. This is for any of us. You know, the more that we, we treasure something, then that's where our heart is, right? Where our treasure is, there our heart is also. You take the time to invest in God, spend time with God, seek to know God, pursue God, and what's going to happen is you will be kindled, guaranteed. But if those things of this world, those shiny things that are passing away that distract our hearts and minds, if that's what you and I spend all of our time with, then what's going to happen is is the things of God are going to not be very interesting to us. And, And no one is immune from this. This happens to me if I go through seasons where I spend time not really focusing on the things of the Lord. Yes, I keep putting studies together, but I don't really spend time with the Lord. Then what happens is like it becomes less interesting to me. But the more you invest in this relationship of knowing God, then the greater your love for him will be and your excitement at knowing him. All right, let's go ahead and turn back to Psalm 76. And we want to remind ourselves as we kind of think about this what he said in, in Ephesians is that, you know, anyone who does not know God is not truly living. That's what it means to be alive, to, to be who we're created to be is, is to know God. And so let's move into the second thing that I see in these first three verses of Psalm 76. And it's that God dwells with his people. Notice verse two, in Salem, also in his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. So, so God wants to dwell with you. God wants to have relationship with you. God wants to hang out with you. Um, even though we've already turned back, I just want to remind you of just a couple things we just read in Ephesians three seventeen and 19. This is what 17 said, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. God wants to take up residence in us. He wants to abide in us. And then verse 19 said that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So this incredible privilege that we have of of how uh, wonderful it, it's you know as as we have our scriptures we have this relationship with God it's like we, we moved to this, this ranch land and you know ten feet under the surface is this, uh, uh, this under the surface is this huge gold deposit and you know but but we really not we're not really into digging <laughs> and so we live our whole lives where that treasure is just below the surface but we've never taken the energy the effort to dig down so it is with our relationship with the Lord. Just take a little time, dig down, see what he has for us. And it's incredible. Jesus said this in John 14, 23, when it comes to dwelling, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. So, so this amazing thing that, that Jesus says that if you, if you love me, then you're gonna obey me. And you know what, my, my father's gonna love you too and you know, both of us are going to come and we're going to make our home with you, and then we put that together with, you know, the Holy Spirit um, indwelling us, empowering us for ministry, then the entire Trinity wants to dwell with you. That, that God himself wants to make you his tabernacle. That same tabernacle that in the Old Testament, in the temple, the Holy of Holies, where the high priest could only go in once a year on the Day of Atonement, God says, I want you to be that. I, I want to dwell Kind of in the ark of the covenant of of your heart. I want to be there. That's an incredible, incredible privilege. Now, third thing that we see here in these first three verses is found in verse three, where it says, There he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield, and the sword of battle, Salah. Uh, This is what I want to bring out right now is that God is a warrior. God's a warrior. God's represented in a bunch of different ways, and especially, in, and I'll use this technical phrase, the mamby-pamby society that we live in, you know, it's like, well, you know, you know, Jesus, you know, meek and mild, and he's not really that tough, and you know, guys always gravitate toward the Jesus flipping over the tables, you know, that's, that's every guy's favorite story, because we see, ah, oh, that's something I'd like to do, I'd like to flip over some tables, But we want to remind ourselves that though God is gracious and kind, he's also a warrior who will defeat all of his enemies. And we have to be reminded of that. That's a clear picture of scripture. So if you have a picture of God in your mind that's like this this cosmic Santa Claus, that he's this big softy that looks around at the sin in the world and is just like, I just can't believe those kids. I just wish they'd behave. If that's your attitude toward God, that's not, that's not a right picture. You see, we're told in the scripture that all must surrender to the rightful rule of God or suffer defeat and internal condemnation. That's the reality. It's his rightful rule. So all must understand, and, and please hear me, this is an important, and I know these are heavy doctrines this morning, but death is not the end. You see, if death were just the end, if people just died and then they stopped existing, then life really wouldn't matter too much. Just do whatever you want, then you die, and there's no you to remember anything. There's no you to pay for anything. But you know, what? the scripture tells us that every person who's ever lived will live forever. Please remember that. Every person who has ever lived will live forever. And there are only two choices of where they'll live. They'll either live with God in heaven, or they'll live apart from him in hell. Only choices. This is what the scriptures teach. Now here's the good news as we think about this. We read this in John chapter six, verse 40. Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. Now now here's the problem though, if it wouldn't be real literal, Everyone who sees the sun, well, that's bad news because I lived way after he was on earth. So what does it mean to see the sun? It means that when you come to the scriptures and you see him in the gospels and you say, yes, I believe in this when I see, Jesus says you have everlasting life and I'm gonna raise you up the last day. So that's the hope. Nobody has to suffer eternal condemnation. If they will turn to Jesus as they'll see him and believe in him, they'll have everlasting life. Well, here's the, the call for you and I. Let's be people who display Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's live like Jesus. Let's have Jesus speaking through us and leading us and guiding us. That when people see us, they can see the Lord Jesus. And they can believe in the Lord Jesus and have that everlasting life. Let's move on to verse 4 now. It says, you are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of Pray, okay. So it's this idea that God is more beautiful than the natural world He created. You know, is it going back to Lord of the Rings. Got to keep tying that back in. You know, that's one of the things that I love so much about it is how beautiful it is. You know, it was filmed there in New Zealand, and there's all kinds of just wonderful, beautiful mountains and vistas and forests and trees, and it's it's gorgeous. But you know, God is more beautiful than that. But it's interesting that so many people become obsessed with the environment. And you know, it's just, oh, let's see. You know, I, I've, I've heard often people say things, well, I don't go to church on Sunday. I just go worship God out in creation. No, you don't. You just want to go fishing. <laughs> let's be honest about the deal. And, and so the thing is, we have to remind, yeah, we're going to be good stewards of the environment, but we're not to worship the environment. And, and again, if you read the book of Revelation, you realize that no matter how good a stewards we are of the environment, the day is coming where God's going to burn it up. God's going to take it down. That's a reality. And so we want to never stop at appreciating God's creation. We want to move on to the creator. We want to say he is more beautiful than the creation. Verses 5 and 6, we read, The stout-hearted were plundered. They have sunk into their sleep, and none of the mighty men have found the use of their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob... Both the chariot and horse were cast into a dead sleep. So what we're we're seeing here is it's it's a recounting of this victory that the Lord had won, and it's a reminder that no army can stand against the Lord. The, The Chinese army can't stand against the Lord, and the Russian army can't stand against the Lord, and the North Korean army can't stand the Lord, but you know what? The US army can't stand against the Lord. No army can stand against the Lord. Now, now, here's also a reminder for you and I. You and I can be defeated and killed, right? You and I can be defeated and killed. And sometimes, you know, that, that could be a fear for us and a worry for us. And we kind of think we somehow tie God's agenda to us personally. Well, if something happens to me, well, God can't f- fulfill his agenda. We're already saying about that, right? God doesn't need us. God can fulfill his, fulfill his promises without us. But here's the deal. God himself cannot be defeated or killed, God himself cannot be stopped. And so I want to encourage you and remind you of this. Would you turn to the end of your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19? Revelation 19. It's already heavy in here. I thought, why not just bring the final judgment in? All right. (laughs) Revelation 19. I'm a glutton for punishment. Let's pick up in verse 17. Revelation 19, starting in verse 17. Here what we have, we're at the end of the tribulation period. Okay, so we've had the rapture of the church. We've had the seven-year tribulation period. We have the armies of the Antichrist gathered together to fight against the return of Christ. So Christ is returning here in Revelation 19 as a conquering king. We pick up in verse 17. John writes, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly into the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Radical. So Angel calls out, it basically calls all of the, you know, the vultures and all of these birds that, that eat dead bodies and say, hey, come on, because there's about to be a lot of dead bodies. It's radical. This is a radical thing, and we see, oh man, you know, there, there could be some people who are like, I just can't believe this, and God's such a big meanie, and taking all these people. You know, all these people, they could have surrendered to Christ, but but here's the deal: you can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, I don't want to be defeated, but I also don't want to submit to God. You got to choose. You got to, If you don't want to be defeated, we'll surrender. Surrender to the Lord. But but here's what happens. So so this the, the angel calls him, and then verse 19, I saw the beast, okay? So that's the Antichrist. It's the, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So him who sat on the horse, we, we know from co- the, the immediate context is Jesus Christ, okay? And it says, and then the beast, and here it is. Yeah, I, I'm skipping to verse 20 already, but this is the most anticlimactic battle in human history. Okay, we see all of this stuff and it's the Battle of Armageddon and all this kind of stuff. It's gonna be so big and blah, blah, blah. And then Jesus just shows up and just takes care of it. Just immediately, verse 20, look, the beast was captured, okay, that's the Antichrist, and with him the false prophet, that's kind of his right-hand man, who works signs in his presence, by, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worship his image, and these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone immediately go on to eternal condemnation and then we read in verse 21 and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh in other words jesus just says the word and they all die all of those marshaled against him as soon as he says the word they're all gone But let's move on a little bit more. It says, then I saw, look at verse uh, chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And and so I I want you to understand that this is a time coming where where Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years. So the millennial kingdom can take place without him there. And God sends an unnamed angel and says, hey, go get Satan. I mean, think about that. As powerful and influential as Satan is, when the time comes where God says, it's time for you to be done for a while, he sends a nameless angel to go get him. And so verse 2, it says that he, that's the angel, laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So he's just going to chain him up cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Notice, but after these things, he must be released for a little while. You and I can't figure out the ways of God because we're like, well, God, you chained him up. How about don't let him back out? (laughs) I mean, this sounds like a good deal, but you and I aren't God. You and I can't make sense of how he does things. We can see that he does things and there's some things that, that have been revealed to us. But as it says in Deuteronomy, the secret things belong to the Lord. And, and so let's skip forward. We, we skip past the thousand year reign. Don't have time to talk about that right now. Let's skip down to verses 7 through 15. Verse 7, when the thousand years had expired, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is a sand in the sea. And they went up like the breadth of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So some fools never learn, right? They're going to go up against God again. And then what happens? Fire came down from God and from heaven and devoured them. It's over. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and that brings us now to the final verses of chapter 20 the great white throne judgment then i saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose faith face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no more place for them and i saw the dead small and great standing before god And books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to, please see this, their works. This is essential, and I'm going to come back to it in just a moment. Every person on planet Earth will be judged by works. The question is whose works? Will you be judged by your works or by Christ's works? That's the key. So so I look at my life, I see who I am, I do not want to be judged by my works. My works are filthy rags at their best. I look at Christ and I see his works are perfect. And God has offered this deal <laughs> that Christ will take all of my sins upon himself at the cross. He will give me his righteousness. Now, as I look, as God looks at me, he judges me by the works of Christ. That's the deal I want. But these people, every single person who refused Jesus Christ, God says, okay, well, then, I'm going to judge you by your works. And by the way, everything you've ever done are written in these books. And so those books are taken down and they're judged by their works, by the things which are written in their books. Verse 13: The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades were delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, here it is, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And notice, nobody makes it through on their own works. Look at verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. In other words, every single person who refused Christ and chose to be judged by their own works, they were found unworthy and eternal condemnation. That's what the scriptures teach. Now, I I know that's a long pause in Psalms. We'll turn back to Psalm 76 now, but... I think it's so important for us, if we're gonna live rightly, to, to think about the end. Where is this whole thing going? Well, how is it gonna end up? Well, it's gonna end up with every single person who hasn't placed their faith in Christ being judged by their own works and being cast into a lake of fire. And so for you and I to share that truth with people, to say there's a way of escape. You can trust in Christ instead. All right, let's look at verses 7 through 9 now. Psalmist Asaph writes, you yourself are to be feared. And who may stand in your presence when you are angry? When once you're angry, you cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to deliver all the oppressed of the earth. So again, this is about fearing God's judgment. We have just talked about God's judgment, right? So it's about fearing God's judgment. That every human being is deserving of God's just judgment, but who will take that judgment? Right again, is will Christ, did Christ take that judgment for me in the cross, or am I going to try to, take, try to take that judgment for myself? And so please don't get caught up in all this kind of thing. There's, you know, there's a lot of injustice in this world. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Why? Because the world is full of fallen people. That's why. Okay. But a lot of people, like, they cry out for justice, justice, justice. What we need to be crying out is for mercy. We need to be crying out for grace. That's, that's what's needed. Verse 10 it says, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath, you shall gird yourself. This is a pretty wild statement. The wrath of man shall praise you. Well, what's really been spoken of here, the idea behind it is God is able to use even the wickedness of man's wrath for good ends. You can't beat God. Okay, so maybe somebody says, you know what? I, I'm, I'm going to just, I'm going to submit my life to Christ. I've, I've done a bad thing and I'm going, to, I'm going to follow Christ and they go to heaven. That, that, praise, that praises God, right? That, that God gets glory for that, for saving a person. A person says, I'm going to show God. I'm going to live my life in just whatever way I want. And I'm going to shake my fist at God. And I'm going to show him. Well, that person goes to hell. You know, God gets glory for that too. So so there's nothing, you know, if if we say, I'm going to work with God or I'm going to fight against God, no matter what, God's going to get glory from it. God's going to do it. And so what we see here in verse 10 is that these ungodly people, they're committing wickedness, but God's going to still use it for his glory. Well, where have we seen this in human history? What's the cross? The cross is the ultimate example of the wrath of man praising God. The, the, the only innocent person to ever live, Jesus Christ, the God man, was murdered and salvation was won for all who trust in him through that very murderous act. And so it's an amazing thing to think about. So, so, so please remember that the only way to, to, to really be successful in this life is to surrender to God. To fight against God, it it just doesn't work because he's going to turn it for his own ends anyway. Verses 11 and 12 says, make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Let all who are around him bring presents to him who ought to be feared. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is awesome to the kings of the earth. And and so uh, really this idea here is about giving to God, blessing God, serving God. And and that should be a, a right response, right? When when children are small, you know, there's just a natural thing that they want to give something to their parents. They they want to draw something and they want to, they want their parent to put it up on the fridge and, and you know that art's horrible, right? It's it's really really bad. But you just put it up there and like Johnny, I mean you tried Johnny. Um, you know, there's that kind of that thing going. But for us, there's this natural thing it should be that we just want to serve God. But we say, well, what can I give to God? You know, what, what should I give to him? Psalm 51 verse 17 says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. So when we just go and we live life with humility, we just live life and say, Lord, you know what? I know that I'm nobody special, and I thank you for using me. I thank you for wanting to have a relationship with me. I thank you for all these things. God loves that, that he appreciates that. And then also I love what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29. There were some people that were kind of challenging Jesus, and they said to Jesus, hey, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in whom he sent. I, I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced that the best thing that you can do for God, moment by moment, the best thing you can give to him is your trust, just to trust him, just believe in him, just believe that he what he says he's going to do, believe that he is good, trust that he's going to work it out. You and I, as we just trust him, we know that's the best thing because if you if you're a parent, you know that when your kids they, they just trust you, they, they actually trust that you' know where you're going as you're driving, that <laughs> they trust you in those ways, that that's super meaningful. So I believe for God, it's incredibly meaningful to God when we just trust him. That's what he's called us to. All right, let's move on to Psalm 77. And I wanna give a little intro from G. Campbell Morgan. This is what G. Campbell Morgan, a famous Bible expositor said about Psalm 77. He said, the message of this Psalm is that to brood on sorrow is to be brokenhearted. While to see God is to sing on the darkest day. Uh, once we come to know that our years are of his right hand, there is light everywhere. Okay, and so so what we have in this psalm is, is that struggle again, right, of, of am I going to be focused on all the bad or am I going to be focused on the Lord? All right, let's look at verses 1 through 3. It says, I cried out to God with my voice. To God with my voice, and He gave ear to me, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord, my hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained, and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah. Okay, so this is a very dark situation that Asaf said. Right? He's in a hard place, He's in a difficult place. He's, he's not feeling good about life. He's troubled, he's complaining, He's not feeling good. So it's a reminder, as we've seen over and over again, believers are not ex- exempt from terrible trials. Okay? Maybe, maybe we need to have that like tattooed on our forearm. <laughs> right? Believers are not exempt from terrible trials. That's just the reality. And if we forget that, we haven't been reading the scriptures. Because the scriptures show us that people who serve God are not exempt. And and so so I'd encourage you, read the scriptures. Read Christian biographies. Read about the hard things that believers have been through to to realize that, hey, this is just how it is. This is how life is in this fallen world. Psalm 34, verse 19, we read these words, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Now, if it just stopped right there, we'd say, okay, well, that's true, but it's not very encouraging. But it says this, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Okay, the day is coming where we're going to be delivered out of every difficulty, affliction we've been through. Now, with a little more on this, would you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 for just a moment? So turn to New Testaments again. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to look at verses 8 through 11. 2 Corinthians 1. Starting in verse 8, Paul's talking to the Corinthians about kind of some of the things that he'd been through, and he says this, I do not want, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble or tribulation, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, okay? So we had these burdens beyond measuring, above strength, here it is, so that we despaired even of life. They didn't know how they could go on. And Paul's just like, I don't even know if I want to keep living. He says, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Here it is. Who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. And then he says, you also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons to our behalf for the gift God granted to us through the many. Now, I would encourage you to kind of come back to this passage over and over again because I think it's safe to say that God loved Paul and that God used Paul and God had a plan for Paul, but that didn't mean that Paul's life was going to be easy. In fact, far from it. It was very, very difficult, but I love that what we see in verse 10 that God has delivered us in the past, he's delivering us presently, and he'll deliver us in the future. It's really, really important for us to remember that, that God's a deliverer, past, present, and future. All right, let's go back to Psalm 77, moving on to verse 4. It says, you hold my eyelids open, I am so troubled that I cannot speak. So uh, is, Asaph was so overwhelmed with grief and trouble that he couldn't sleep and he couldn't speak. He, he was kept up at night, didn't, couldn't talk to anybody about it. Verse 5, I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. Okay, so this is kind of on the right track, right, thinking back to what God did in the past. But actually in context, what's happening here is Asaph is remembering what God's done in the past, but he's troubled because he doesn't find that happening to him right then. And so there's that struggle. Sometimes we're like, well, God delivered me in the past, but why is he letting me stay in this today? And and so sometimes that that kind of causes kind of more trouble for us, right? And then verse six, he says, I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes diligent search. Okay, so it seems like he's wrestling through this, right? He's trying to remember what God's done in the past. He's trying to think about those things. And, And so I believe that as we see in verse six, you know, he's, he's trying to choose to remember the good things that God has done in the past. And, and I would encourage you toward that. You are not, I am not at the mercy of our feelings. Okay, we're going to have all kinds of feelings. We don't have to give in to those feelings. We can say, you know what, I'm going to choose to think on good things. I'm going to go Philippians 4.8 on this deal. I'm going to think of those things that are noble and true and just and righteous, and I'm going to focus on those things. So that's what he's trying to wrestle through. But notice in verses 7 through 9, he says, Will you cast us off forever, and, and will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Selah. Notice that language that he's using. Forever, no more, forever, forever, forgotten. And, and so he, he's, he's kind of, you know, feels like the current trouble he's going through will last forever. Okay. He's in this attitude of, you know, no good will ever come again. And so maybe some of you, if you, if you struggle with, you know, um, you know, anxiety or depression, or it feels like this, and this is how it feels like to me, it's kind of the pit perspective. It's like you're in a dark pit, and it's kind of in, you tell yourself in your mind, um, I've always been in the pit, <laughs> I'm always going to be in the pit, and I'll never get out of the pit, right? Kind of that attitude. And you need often sometimes someone from outside of the pit to pull you up and say, hey, there's, there's reality, There's something different here, okay? And that's what the scriptures remind us. They remind us that there's perspective outside of ourselves. So again, he feels like his his trouble... It is gonna last forever, but for some perspective, I wanna to offer to you Romans chapter 8, verse 18. This is what Paul writes in Romans eight eighteen. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, okay? So there's gonna be sufferings in this present time, in this moment, he says though, they're not worthy to be compared, with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Okay, that you and I, as believers, that we're on our way to glory. We're gonna receive a glory, and when we receive that glory, That first second when we see Jesus Christ face to face, okay, we're not going to be like, well, yeah, but it was hard that time I broke my arm. (laughs) It's not going to be like that. We're going to be like, it's not going to be worthy to be compared. And so a reminder, you know, it's going to become a mantra that I've, I've shared over and over. For the believer, no pain is permanent. For the believer, no pain is permanent. Now, here's the turning point as we move into verse 10. As Asaph writes, and I said, this is my anguish. Okay, this is my anguish. So he's, he's acknowledging that things are difficult. He's acknowledging things are the way that they are. He doesn't pretend that everything's okay. Okay, he's, he's not that famous meme where the dog's sitting at the table and everything's burning up around him and it says everything is fine. That's not what he's doing. He says, this is my anguish. Okay, this is like it is, but then he makes a choice. He refuses to continue to focus on his situation and instead he intentionally turns to the Lord and his works of old. So notice he says, but I said, this is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the most high. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. So that choice. That's a choice. He's saying, I will remember it. I will focus on it. I will think about it. Asaph chooses to remember. Now, now here's the deal. You can't remember what you never learn. You cannot remember the scriptures if you've never learned the scriptures. So what should you do? We'll probably just quit. No, (laughs) no. Learn the scriptures, <laughs> right? Read the scriptures, listen to the scriptures, study the scriptures, do those things. And what happens is that as, as you hide God's, word in his, in your, hide God's word in your heart so you might not sin against him, then what happens when difficult times come, God is gonna bring those to remembrance. So learn it and then choose to remember. So if you and I are to follow Asaph's example, we must learn what God did in the past. But here's the interesting thing. Learning becomes a form of remembering. The more, I, as I go over the scriptures again and again and again and again and again, what happens is I'm reminded of these things as I learn them again. And so it's, it's vital. Get yourself out of the cycle. Get yourself out of the cycle of all of those people who are vying for your attention so they might have your money. Go to the one. Go to God. He doesn't want your money. He actually wants to give you glorious, unbelievable treasure If you'll just focus on him. So learn and remember on his things. Now we look at verse 12. He says, I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. Here's what happens. Learning and remembering leads to meditating. Now this is not some kind of like Eastern meditation or emptying your mind. This meditating means pondering, considering, thinking about, working through. So we learn, we remember, and then we begin to meditate on work, God's word. But then what does that happen? Meditating leads to talking. We see this, right? People watch the Super Bowl. You know, they, they thought about the Super Bowl and they watched the Super Bowl and they thought about it. And then what happens? The next day they go to work, they talk about it. We all talk about what we meditate on, what we consider, what we ponder. So let's do that. Let's let's learn the word of God. Let's remember the word of God. Let's meditate on the word of God. Let's talk about the word of God. Then we share the word of God with others. We encourage other people. We build community and fellowship in the word of God. Let's move on to verses 13 through 15 now. It says, your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. So is, who is so great a God as our God? and you are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples, and with your arm you have redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. So I, I love that phrase here. What I want to really focus on in verse 13 there is this, your way is in the sanctuary. And, and what I get from this is, as Asaph went back to the place of worship, he saw God clearly once again. As we get into that place of really just worshiping God, then what happens is it brings clarity. And we don't have time to turn there today, but uh, you can look back at Psalm 73, verses 12 through 17, where Asaph was really troubled, really discouraged, and then he went to the sanctuary of God and everything was set straight for him. It's really, really important. All right, now Asaph next is gonna, he's, what he's doing here is he's really focusing on the Exodus. We'll see this more as we finish up in verses 16 through 20 here. It says, the waters saw you, O God, the waters saw you and they were afraid. The depths also trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies sent out a sound, your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind, the lightnings lit up the worlds, the earth trembled and shook, your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And so that's all imagery from the Exodus. That's going through the Red Sea. And, and so I, again, that's it's an incredibly important thing for us is like if you've never spent some time or it's been a long time since you've been in Exodus, go through Exodus. Spend some time in Exodus and see what God did and trust that that's the same God. Because here's the deal. If you can believe the first verse of the Bible, you can believe all the rest of the verses of the Bible. If you believe there's a God who always existed, who created heaven and earth uh, just from his words, then you can believe that he opened the Red Sea. And if you can believe that, that he opened the Red Sea, then you believe that he's a God who can keep you till the end. That he can encourage you and give you what you need to continue on. And so as we draw this study to a close, I just want to remind you and remind me that God is the Lord of all things. He is the Lord of all things. And so I would encourage you, remind yourself of this truth. Meditate on his word, talk with others about him, and remember that God wants you to know him more. That he wants to draw you into relationship with himself. He desires to dwell more closely with you. And though the way is hard, the day is coming when he will take you home.